Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. And if true crime is your jam, and like me, you enjoy delving into unsolved cases, trying to figure out who done it, please consider subscribing. Also, if you enjoy my videos, please hit that like button. Welcome to Bridge Guy, The Delphi Murders, a true crime podcast brought to you by Bedcrumb Stories Podcast in association with Carnage Street. I'm your host, T, and this is episode two, The Girls Are Found. Tuesday, February 14th, 2017. This is the day that 13-year-old Abigail Williams and 14-year-old Liberty German are found in a gully near Deer Creek under the Monon High Bridge in Delphi, Indiana. For most of us, when we see February 14th, we automatically think of Valentine's Day. But for Abby and Libby's families and friends and the citizens of Delphi, Moving forward, February 14th will never be the same. It will always bear a scar. When Libby's sister Kelsey and her grandmother Becky Patty wake up that Tuesday morning, they're still exhausted from the night before. Worry and fear made for a white night, une nuit blanche, as the French say, a sleepless night. Kelsey and Becky get up early, around 7.30 a.m., and head straight to the fire station, where the command center for the search has been set up. The mood at the station is heavy. There's a gnawing ache that something is very wrong. It doesn't help that a heavy fog has engulfed Delphi, delaying the start of the official search until 10 a.m. When the search parties are finally assigned an area, Kelsey and Becky are separated and find themselves in different groups. 200 search volunteers and local firefighters head out to the trails to begin searching anew. There are even kayakers on site to paddle along the creek. Kelsey and her search party are sent to the Monon High Bridge area. Kelsey's grandmother, Becky, is sent to a different section of the sprawling Delphi historic trail system. At some point, someone searching on the far side of the bridge, across from Deer Creek, shouts out that they've found a black Nike shoe. When Kelsey hears those words, she immediately knows who the shoe belongs to, her little sister, Libby. About 30 seconds later, there's another shout. This time the person is saying that they found the girls. Kelsey's first instinct is to run over the creek to get to Libby and Abby. For a fleeting moment, Kelsey believes her sister and Abby are alive and well, that they have to be, but then someone shouts something else. Whatever those words are, Kelsey immediately knows that Libby and Abby are no longer alive. A private citizen found the girls. Not a police officer, not a firefighter, just a regular person who volunteered to help search. Soon firefighters arrive where the girls are lying on the ground. We can only imagine what might have been going through their minds and their hearts in that moment. With her grandmother Becky far away in another search party, and her grandfather Mike down at the fire station, Kelsey is without close family in those moments. 
but through a miracle of fate, there's a woman there who lost her brother in high school and who understands the 17-year-old's devastation. She hugs Kelsey until she can calm down. When Kelsey's grandfather, Mike, who's still down at the fire station, hears the news that the girls have been located, he jumps in his truck and speeds over to the trails. Meanwhile, Becky, who's still with her search group on a trail, hears from a friend that the girls have been found. When Becky asks the inevitable question, are the girls okay? The friend just stands there saying nothing. Becky knows now that Libby and Abby are gone, and she asks to be taken to Kelsey, but they're not letting anyone get close to the area, not even Libby's grandmother. Just then, Becky's husband Mike pulls up and spots her and other family members. When he speaks to the family friend who was in the search party that found the girls, he discovers just how bad it is. The girls are gone and it's a bloody scene. He goes over to Becky and tells her that it's no good for them there and they need to go. The couple climb in their truck. As they're sitting inside, a coroner's truck arrives. Becky says of that moment, that's when I realized this is real. This is not a mistake, end quote. So at this point, Becky, Mike, and Kelsey know Libby and Abby are deceased, but they don't yet know exactly what led to their deaths. As they drive down the road, Becky and Mike see friends who've been helping in the search. They're standing along the roadside, looking somber and dazed. By now, the searchers all know the teen's sad fate. Abby's mother, Anna Williams, is waiting at the fire station when a local pastor comes to speak with her. Anna knows before he says a word that the news is not good. The pastor tells Anna that they believe they've found the girls, but they're not with us anymore. Anna's mind goes straight to Abby's baptism. For the three years that Abby went to church camp, she's wanted to be baptized. But each time, Anna told Abby no, because she wanted Abby baptized in front of the family. The pastor comforts the distraught mother, telling Anna that Abby gave her heart to the Lord, and she's with him now. This has an immediate calming effect on Anna, and Anna says that she knew in that moment that her girl was okay. Libby and Kelsey's mother, Carrie Timmons, who's at work in Kentucky, gets a call from her brother. He tells her that he's seen some very disturbing posts on Facebook. He tells Carrie to call Becky. Remember, Becky Patty is the mother of Carrie's ex, Derek, with whom she had Libby and Kelsey. She's also Libby and Kelsey's legal guardian. Carrie says no to calling Becky, but instead dials her daughter, Kelsey. Kelsey doesn't answer, but Carrie keeps calling over and over, up to eight times or more, frustrated that no one's answering. Carrie drives toward the gas station to fill up her car in anticipation of traveling to Indiana. As she's driving, her phone rings and Kelsey's name pops up. Carrie expects to hear Kelsey's voice saying, Mom, we found her. Instead, it's Derek, someone Carrie hasn't talked to much over the years. 
Derek tells Carrie that they've found the girls, and for a split second, Carrie feels a sense of relief, but Derek doesn't say anything else. Carrie asks him, are they okay? He says, no. She asks, are they alive? Derek replies, no. Carrie is alone in her car, screaming, confused, discombobulated. She pulls up to the wrong side of the gas pump and cannot figure out why she can't find her gas cap. The world is upside down in that moment. Back in Delphi, the entire community is learning of the tragic outcome. The search was a shared one, a community effort, and the pain of the sad discovery is also shared by the Delphi community. Those were their girls, two of their own. When the sheriff of Carroll County first learns that the missing girls are deceased, he thinks it's due to an accident. But within the hour, news comes that the girls have died as a result of foul play. The sheriff cannot believe it. Not there, in the small town of Delphi. But he can't break down. He can't give in to sorrow. Not yet. He has to get an investigation started. If this is a crime, they're going to have to process the crime scene as soon as possible. The sheriff immediately knows that the crime is going to require more knowledge, expertise, and equipment than Carroll County has to offer. A call is made to the Indiana State Police, or ISP. The ISP have more experienced homicide detectives and crime scene investigators. Doug Carter, the superintendent of the Indiana State Police, is given the task of organizing and overseeing the investigation. The double homicide requires a full-scale investigation. Once Superintendent Carter gets the news, he immediately leaves downtown Indianapolis and drives toward Delphi. Also heading to Delphi is Sergeant Kim Riley. He's a state police spokesperson. Sergeant Riley will be giving the first press briefing in a couple of hours. Riley calls some of their investigators to find out what they know. But nobody has any information. Not yet. The closest state police station is 30 minutes away from Delphi. The investigators are likely making their way to the crime scene and driving in that moment with their lights flashing and horns blaring to get there as soon as possible. Time is of the essence. They have to get there before the crime scene gets disturbed or contaminated. They only get one shot to process the crime scene. It has to be thorough, and it has to be done correctly. When Superintendent Carter pulls up to the scene, he sees fear and horror in everyone's eyes. His thoughts are racing as he asks himself, what is needed to process this type of crime scene? Carter knew he needed a tremendous response from the state police, but that they weren't going to be enough. Carter knows that the crime scene also needs to be immediately roped off and secured. He will also have to interview all the searchers who've been in and around the crime scene. He needs to find out what the searchers found and what they may have done at the scene. Next, the question becomes, how big is the crime scene? Where does it start and where does it end? 
The area is full of ravines, small hills, and there's a creek that runs through it. The final part of the crime scene is down in a lower gully. There are two hills on either side. When Carter finds his way closer to the crime scene, maybe 300 feet away from where the girls are lying on the ground, he's wondering how they got there. Which side did they come from? And where did the suspect or suspects go afterward? At first, Carter believes the crime scene is just where the bodies are. But after kids who saw Libby's Snapchat alert the police, and when Libby's phone is discovered, the investigators realize that the crime scene actually includes the trailhead and the Monon High Bridge. So suddenly, they have to tape off and secure that entire area. So they start backing up from where the bodies are to where the video was taken. Unfortunately, anywhere from 400 to 500 people were searching for the girls before they were found. Many of them were trampling on some of that land. Some have maybe spit, urinated, stubbed out a cigarette there. This is going to add to the crime scene's complication. Superintendent Carter brings in five to six crime scene investigators, or CSIs as they're called. Then he and other investigators do all they can to encircle the area to enable these CSIs to process the highly complicated crime scene properly. The work has to be thorough. This crime is too heinous to make any mistakes. Guards stand watch over the scene 24-7 for days. They want to prevent curiosity seekers from walking in and taking pictures. During the first press conference, Sergeant Riley announces that they found two bodies in Deer Creek, about a mile east of town. Take a listen. I'm Riley. I'm with the Indiana State Police. I'm the public information officer from the Lafayette Post. Steve Mullen, Delphi Police Department, Chief of Police. Topolizing the Carroll County Sheriff. Basically, we're going to make this, it's going to be short and sweet. We don't have that much at this point in time. Uh, basically, what we've got, uh, we have found uh, two bodies. Um, is that the Sugar Creek? Deer Creek. Deer Creek, sorry. In Deer Creek, uh, about a mile east of town. Uh, we are investigating this as, as a uh, crime scene. Uh, we suspect foul play. We have not made positive identification of the two bodies, so we're not going to be releasing any information on them at this point in time. Uh, we've got uh, the Indiana State Police is assisting the Carroll County Sheriff's Department and the uh, Delphi City Police Department in the investigation here. We also have the FBI Crime Scene Investigation Group here out of Indianapolis. And uh, one thing the family asked us to do is to thank all the communities around Delphi and the people here in Delphi for assisting in attempting to locate these uh, the two young children that were missing earlier. Although Sergeant Riley doesn't name names, everyone pretty much knows that they likely belong to Libby German and Abby Williams. The news spreads through the small town and finds its way to the middle school that Libby and Abby attended. The school where their classmates are back in class after that makeup snow day. 
Pastor Todd Ladd receives a call from the school corporation asking for his staff to go to the middle school to help comfort the students. Ladd doesn't know it yet, but his staff is already there, along with other counselors and other local pastors. One of Libby's close friends is pulled out of her health class and taken to the office. The friend sees her dad standing there. He's been out searching. The friend is told about Abby and Libby. It's not long before the entire school, the teachers, the students alike, hear of their classmates' deaths. Comfort dogs are brought in to soothe them. The school handles the delicate situation with grace and care. Now, some of my classmates died from a car accident in grade school, and I'll never forget their names and what happened, how I felt. That stuff sticks with you, especially when you're young and death is something new to you. Delphi as a whole is left reeling. They aren't sure if there's a serial killer on the loose. Doors that previously were left unlocked are now bolted. Children are having nightmares. Parents are keeping their kids on lockdown. No one wants to hike the Delphi historic trails. What once was a refuge is now a place of fear and anxiety. And the community wants answers, and they want them right away. Next time on Bridge Guy, The Delphi Murders, we'll talk about what happens when law enforcement and the public become aware of the photos and the video that Libby German took of the man on the bridge and how everyone begins to speculate about who that person could possibly be. I hope you'll join me for that. Until the next time on Bed Crime Stories. Now, please do me a favor. Smash that like button. Leave me a comment. Subscribe. We'd love to have you. See you next time.